Welcome to the Choate Family Office podcast series. On this show, we explore important topics related to investing, managing risk, and sustaining long-term wealth across generations. We believe that all investors can learn from the ways that successful families manage their wealth. Hi, I'm Todd Malay, Managing Director of Choate Investment Advisors. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Carrie Leahy, an independent economic consultant who provides us with ongoing advice about the state of the economy and, in particular, the Federal Reserve. Carrie teaches economics at Columbia University in New York and has extensive experience in the private sector and government roles. He was chief U.S. economist at Decision Economics, a senior economist at Deutsche Bank Securities, and was the chief financial markets economist at Lehman Brothers, where he served as the senior Fed watcher. He has also worked for General Motors and the White House. Kerry earned his PhD from the University of Pennsylvania and is a Phi Beta Kappa graduate of Clark University. Kerry, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you very much, Todd, for having me. Thank you for that uh, very kind uh, intro. So today we're going to talk about the Federal Reserve, uh, or the Fed, I guess, as we'll be referring to it. And stepping back from the current crisis, there's a lot to talk about with regard to the Fed's role now. But I was hoping you could start by just giving us an overview of how the Federal Reserve, what role does it play in the U.S. and global economy? Well, very good. Thank you for that, Todd. What I'd like to do is give you a little uh, Fed uh, 101, where I'll talk a little bit about the history of the Federal Reserve, a little bit about the institutional details, what goals the Fed has, its relationship with the other branches of government, particularly Congress and the White House, and then talk about the tools that the Fed uh, uses to, uh, to meet those mandated goals. The first thing to know is that the Federal Reserve, the Fed, or the, the board, uh, is a very interesting organization that comprises uh, both government and the private sector. As some of you may already know, there are a number of uh, members of the so-called Open Market Committee, the Policy Rate Setting Committee, which are uh, presidents of private banks. But there are governors in Washington, D.C., who actually are appointed by the president uh, and confirmed by the Senate. So it's important to remember that this uh, bifurcated operating committee, the so-called FOMC, includes uh, individuals who are making economic policy for all Americans, but are not directly uh, responsible to either the president or Congress and ultimately the voter. That has created some problems with Congress, which we'll get to in a moment. But the first thing to know about the Fed is the Fed has been around for over 100 years, but it has only really been independent of the U.S. Treasury, which is what we call our own finance uh, department, since uh, 1951. And in 1978, uh, Congress, in its wisdom, gave the Fed uh, a very broad uh, and vague mandate of what they wanted them to do. So they've been around for 65 years, and they didn't really have a specific mandate. And the mandate mandated from Congress, which was the so-called uh, Humphrey Hawkins uh, uh, bill uh, for two uh, legislators, was both vague but broad. What they wanted, meaning Congress, wanted the Fed to, to uh, have stable prices and maximum sustainable unemployment. Well, what does that mean? What has happened is the Fed has taken the, the uh, stable prices to mean stable inflation, where the goal of inflation is to be around uh, 2%, the so-called 2% target, which was codified by Greenspan in the 1990s and made quasi-official in the last five years. 
maximal sustainable unemployment is much vaguer and harder to figure out because we economists have had a terrible time trying to figure out what is the unemployment rate that would be consistent with a stable uh, inflation rate. As it turns out, that rate has been given a lot of crazy names, but the latest name and the one you may have already heard of is the so-called natural rate. So the Fed, like many people using economics, is not as confident on what that rate is. And as we will see later in our podcast, the fact that the Fed, particularly led by Janet Yellen and now led by Chairman Powell, uh, has been very much willing to run the economy hot and let the natural rate decide when inflation will eventually pick up. Remind me what the tools are that the Fed is using to make this trade-off. The Fed is essentially America's central bank. It's the bank for our banking system. And What tools do they have at their disposal to strike the balance between inflation and unemployment? Well, what they essentially do is they have what you might call now uh, four sets of tools. Uh, the first tool is the one that most people are familiar with from their uh, Econ 101 classes, which is changing the amount of reserves uh, in the system that banks can use to make loans. So they're changing uh, interest rates by changing reserves. They set a policy rate, the so-called federal funds rate, and they adjust reserves to get you there. One of the confusions many investors have is they think this liquidity, these reserves are being uh, created by the Fed, which is they call money, uh, is they're creating wealth out of thin air. And the answer to that question is yes and no. But it's important to remember that the Fed has to rely on banks to take those reserves, that liquidity, and make loans. And once they make a loan, it's important to remember that a loan is a debt. So it, it doesn't create wealth. It allows someone that takes on the debt from the bank. The bank has made you a loan. Are you going to waste that and, and create a business that doesn't thrive? Or can you create a business that does thrive and you create wealth by creating this IOU? The second thing the Fed can do in their tools is to uh, communicate. Now, this is called currently forward guidance, but that's been done by the Fed for many, many years uh, uh, where they uh, have been trying to tell people where they think the economy ought to go. It used to be referred to as moral suasion but it became forward guidance after 2008. The Fed also makes policy statements since 1994, and they also have numerical forecasts, and they finally did something I didn't think the Fed would ever do, that starting in 2012, they had uh, policy rate forecasts. So they are manipulating both the unemployment rate and the inflation rate by lowering rates, communicating uh, their uh, intentions uh, in an effort to uh, spark, if the economy is weak, interest-sensitive spending like cars and homes, which are interest-sensitive. Uh, and at the same time, if the economy is running too hot, they'll raise rates, turn off the spigot to banks, and hopefully banks will pull on the reins, make uh, lending uh, more expensive and less available, and slow down the economy. I will mention two other uh, tools that they use, one that really came up after 2008. What happened is the Fed says, okay, we are concerned about inflation and concerned about the economy. We had the lower range rates to effectively zero, so they couldn't lower them anymore. So they said, my gosh, what do our models tell us that we need to do to right the ship on the economy in 2008? And believe it or not, their model said, you got to lower the policy rate to minus 6%. But they said, we can't do that. The rate's already at zero. So what they did to approximate that 
was to combine forward guidance, with, which is called balance sheet expansion, which many of our uh, podcast listeners know as of quantitative easing. So they expanded the balance sheet in a way to replicate uh, lower rates. And then finally, what they did is, once again, an important point to remember is the Fed is hamstrung in that they need to work with banks. And they increasingly know that banks, while still very important, are less important than they were 10, 15, 25, 50, or 100 years ago. So they created a number of financing vehicles in 2008, many of which they brought back in just the last several months that broaden the counterparties that are engaged with the Fed and at the same time widen the collateral that can be used by loans. So the last point I want to make is, and Powell says that in speeches all the time, is the Fed doesn't buy, they lend. And so if they are going to lend someone they think needs help to make that loan, the borrower has to provide some good collateral. So in many cases, the Fed will over-collateralize loans in an effort to protect themselves and in, in many cases, they, they end up being overly cautious and they make money. Just to give you a final example, on all the lending that the Fed made to Bear Stearns, they ended up making a very considerable profit, in part because, as I'm sure uh, many of our listeners know, the longer you can wait, the more illiquid, risky assets can actually end up turning a profit. So the Fed could be a patient investor and they ended up making money on uh, assets they were forced to uh, take over, which they would have lost money if they'd done it and sold them initially, uh, and they ended up making money. So those are the four ways they, 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 they try to, in summary, affect uh, interest-sensitive spending in an effort to either uh, prop up the economy or slow down the economy, depending on what they're worried about. And Gary, you mentioned those last two tools uh, are relatively new innovations. They came as a consequence of 2008. Uh, and they've certainly come back into play now. Could you talk about how the Fed is applying the lessons of 2008 to the current pandemic? Yes, I basically can say that there are four things the Fed did and learned from 2008. So I will use your, your question, which is a good one, to amplify it a bit. The first thing they learned from 2008 was to go big, go fast, and to be as effective as possible. To think that the Fed pre-pandemic was predicting interest rate uh, increases in 2019 and actually ended up lowering rates, and at the same time abandoning a shrinking of the balance sheet and moving towards increasing the balance sheet before the pandemic, they were willing to move fast. And then when the pandemic hit, they basically lowered interest rates from effectively two percentage points to zero in literally two weeks. I mean, that has never been done in the history of the Federal Reserve to move that big, fast, uh, and effectively. So the Fed has proven to be the most dovish Fed uh, in history and is ready to run the economy hot until the inflation rate is above the 2% target. So I think the promise the Fed is making to us in with their tools now is that they're not going to raise rates from zero until inflation gets to 2%, which could be a very long way down the road. Now, to answer your question more uh, specifically, it's important to remember that the Fed has not only adopted almost all of the uh, special vehicles from 2008, but have added to them, and they've gone boldly where no one thought the Fed would ever go. And let me walk you through those very quickly. Uh, the first import, important thing to note was the transmission process in this downturn was completely the reverse of 2008. In 2008, it was 
Weak banks could make a strong economy weak. So the Fed was focusing on the banks, not so much on the real economy. So one of the things the Fed did in 08, and they did last, was they set up a special facility for commercial paper. What was the very first unusual thing the Fed did beyond lowering rates to zero is they reestablished the commercial paper facility first because the transmission was completely different. They, what was happening now was business was collapsing and the Fed was worried it was going to weaken the banks. So instead of the banks, uh, in some sense, being hurt early, they're afraid they're going to be hurt late. So they set up the commercial paper facility. And then they did something they had never done before. First, they decided in their wisdom to help the corporate bond market, and they set up a facility that said, if necessary, we will buy uh, corporate bonds. And then they went a step further and surprised yours truly and a number of other analysts to uh, uh, set up not only purchases of high-grade corporate securities, but junk bonds. And then finally, the one area the Fed was least interested in getting caught up in the muck and mire of state and local finances, uh, they agreed to provide short-term financial assistance to the municipal bond market. And then finally, what they did is not only were they helping the big guys with commercial paper, corporate bonds, junk bonds, uh, and the like, they did set up what is known as a Main Street financing facility which was trying to hit the medium-sized operation, too large to tap the uh, special funding from the governmental legislation, the so-called uh, PPP loans for small business. They were attacking with this Main Street lending facility, medium-sized businesses. They are getting involved in that. But the Fed has proven to be a reliable partner to Wall Street and has proven to be concerned about not only inflation, uh, but the unemployment rate, so that the Fed tremendously turned around the markets, particularly in the corporate area, without actually having to buy any corporate bonds. So the very announcement effect the Fed made that we are willing to help the junk bond market, the corporate market, the municipal market, and medium-sized uh, and small institutions, if necessary, was a tremendous announcement effect, not unlike the, the famous 2012 statement by uh, European Central Bank President Mario Draghi, where he said, we will do whatever it takes to save the euro. And as it turned out, he didn't have to do what he said he had, was thinking of doing because people believed if you, if you got the big bazooka in your pocket, you don't necessarily have to use it. And I wanted to come back to this notion of the Fed buying bonds, corporate bonds, even junk bonds you mentioned. How does that actually work? Where does the Fed get the money to do that? Well, the, the point to be made is the Fed is protecting itself from an initial line of losses by accepting money from the taxpayer. What happened was, because of changes uh, made uh, in 08 through the Dodd-Frank legislation, through the Dodd-Frank legislation, uh, the Fed cannot do a lot of stuff, so to speak, without the approval of Treasury and the capital that the Treasury would provide. Now, if it really is in over the weekend kind of situation, and the, the uh, Treasury can't go to the Congress and say, will you allocate us some capital to set up these facilities that the Fed will run? They can tap things, and this is getting very inside baseball kind of stuff, but they have something called the Exchange Stabilization Fund, which has up to $100 billion, and that can be, in a real pinch, be tapped. But as some of our uh, listeners may know, the so-called CARES Act, which was the third pandemic bill passed by Congress, 
it had various tranches of capital that were being tapped by the Fed. And from there, the Fed could leverage up by a factor of eight to 10. So if they get $10 billion of capital for a particular program from the Treasury via you and me, the U.S. taxpayer, they can leverage up by a factor of eight. So in some sense, they are making money not out of, of thin air, but out of capital provided by the taxpayer. So if these loans were to go bust, uh, you and me, the taxpayer, would, pro would be on the hook for somewhere between 10 and 12% of the loss. After that, it would be a, a different a different story. So they are getting money from the taxpayer of which they're leveraging up. So that's what the Main Street facility is doing uh, and the corporate bond lending facility and the junk bond lending facilities are doing. And you also mentioned that the Fed has announced that it's going to keep interest rates very low, near zero through the next couple of years. How does it do that in practice? Is that a combination of the forward guidance that you mentioned and or what tools do they have available in order to make sure that interest rates remain low? Well, they, it is true that they will use in conjunction with forward guidance uh, and uh, quantitative easing a way to keep rates low. But the major way they do it from day in, day out is the old-fashioned setting of reserves. Now, what that leads you to, and it turned out these worries, while understandable, turned out to be uh, uh, incorrect, uh, is that the Fed is creating an astounding amount of reserves and creating an astounding amount of money by the, uh, money based on those reserves, meaning that various measures of the so-called money stock, M1, M2, M3, whatever you want to call it, uh, have increased substantially. The worry in the marketplace, though, Todd, you didn't ask that question uh, directly, is that eventually those reserves could lead to an overheating of the economy. But the first point I want to stress, if we if we want to spend more time on the, the inflation question, is once you produce reserves, the banks produce the loans, first you have to have a stronger economy to get a higher inflation rate. Unless you're talking about the usual uh, inter intricacies of an oil price shock, where, where you have an increase in oil prices, which makes the economy weaker because you've taken money out of people's pocketbooks, but you also raise inflation, it's very important that our a podcast listeners remember that if we're going to have inflation down the road, it almost always happens when the economy gets stronger. So at first, the economy is going to react, more lending, lower interest rates, stronger interest-sensitive spending, more business activity, and then eventually you'll run into capacity constraints. The economy will feel strains and you'll get inflation, but first growth, uh, then inflation. So it's, it's generating a tremendous amount of reserves uh, to keep rates uh, very, very low. But once again, the Fed will have to do less the more effective and how more the, the typical investor believes the Fed, this is the so-called well-anchored inflation expectations argument, that if ultimately the market says the Fed has our back, they're worried about the economy, but they're also worried about inflation, then we don't have to worry about the Fed screwing up. And they may not have to increase reserves as much because people will base their activity on the announcement effect, not the actual activity itself. Okay, I wanted to ask you about that because after 2008 and the extraordinary Fed intervention, there were concerns that that would stoke inflation eventually. And we did have a, eventually a strong economic recovery, but we never really had inflation. In fact, inflation really didn't get back to the Fed's target. And so, A, I'm wondering why that is, and B, what lessons did that have for us this time around? Well, the first answer to your question is it's the hardest thing for an analyst like myself to say is we just don't know. And we've been scratching our heads on why inflation has stayed so low. Now, 
many people will laugh at us economists, and we've been the butt of jokes for generations now, that, oh, I knew what that was 35 years ago. It was because of the China effect. Now, clearly, uh, low-cost uh, imports were an important part of that. Clearly, the fact that workers have less bargaining strength played a role in that. But it was very hard to figure out how the economy could get to the lowest unemployment rate in 50 years without generating a very much inflation. And in particular, inflation was doing what we economists thought it ought to do. It was moving to 2%, and it was on its way to 2.5%. We were going to have the last laugh. And then in 2018, it got to 2% and then backed off, and the economy got even stronger. So that was one of the major reasons why the Fed basically waved their hands and said, we just don't know, and so we need to lower rates just in case the market, which was concerned about a slowdown in the economy in 2018, uh, they lowered rates. So the answer is we don't have an easy answer, uh, and the Fed has basically taken what was considered a oddball premise where you'd have kind of a, a liberal outlier among the Federal Reserve policymakers, and he said, what we really ought to do is not raise rates at all, one iota, until the inflation rate is uh, above 2% and it's been a, above 2% for some time. And that now is probably the mantra at the Fed. And I think the Fed would be highly reluctant to raise rates right now until the inflation rate gets to 2%, which I don't think is going to happen. But there are some interesting wrinkles out there, not necessarily related to monetary policy, which may give us more inflation than people are looking for. But it won't be necessarily because the Fed printed uh, too much money. Well, I want to come back to your inflation outlook because I'm, I'm very interested in that. But before we get there, let's talk for a few minutes just about what are the limits of the Fed's effectiveness. Obviously, uh, you've mentioned a number of very powerful tools that they have to shape the economy. But Jerome Powell was recently testifying before Congress and repeatedly asked Congress to increase fiscal support. And could you talk a little bit about the role of fiscal policy versus the monetary policy that is enacted by the Federal Reserve? Yes. Yeah, so why don't I answer that in two parts? First, talk about what the Fed hasn't done and could do, what other tools uh, they have, and what are the limits of those tools, and then talk uh, a little bit about the, the importance of fiscal policy working in conjunction with monetary policy. First, obviously, the question you ask yourself, if the Fed's willing to buy junk bonds, are they willing to buy equities? And the answer is, we don't know. It's highly unlikely they would do that, but there is some precedence that other central banks uh, do actually uh, purchase equities, but that's highly unlikely. What is more likely to happen is what is referred to esoterically as yield curve control, which says, as we already discussed, the Fed uh, pins down the front end of the U.S. yield curve through the federal funds rate. But could they pin down uh, intermediate and longer-term rates? And the answer is yes, they did that. When I mentioned that the Fed achieved independence from the U.S. Treasury in 1951, before that, to finance uh, the World War II indebtedness, the Federal Reserve essentially log-rolled and did what the Treasury told them to do and basically kept rates low, and they pinpointed intermediate, long-term, and short-term rates. So they have experience in doing that, though clearly no one currently working at the Fed was working at the Fed in 1942 when they were doing that, but they do have experience doing that. Now, effectively, it doesn't mean a whole heck of a lot because interest rates are already extremely low, but they can do that should they feel the need. The last point to be made, which is maybe a question whose time has come and gone, is could the Fed lower interest rates below zero, as they've done in a number of uh, European economies, most notably Sweden? And the answer is maybe, 
The big difference there is the problem with negative rates is that uh, it can create some misallocation of resources, keep zombie companies alive that shouldn't remain alive. And then finally, in the U.S., because we have a highly developed money market mutual fund industry, there is some difficulty that if interest rates were negative, would that make it impossible for money market mutual funds to maintain that so-called dollar value uh, of their funds? And could those funds become unstable? So that's probably makes negative rates highly unlikely. The Fed would be a lot more comfortable doing uh, yield curve control. Now, finally, what about fiscal policy? This is extremely interesting and for a number of reasons. The first is history. Many people said, why was the Fed continuously increasing the balance sheet with quantitative easing two, two and a half, and three? Why were they doing that? And one of the major reasons why they were doing it is they had to deal with the hand they were dealt. And as some of our uh, podcast listeners know, they may remember that many G7 economies, including the U.S., adopted fiscal stringency, so-called austerity measures, starting in around 2010 and 2011. This happened in the United States. And so as fiscal policy became tighter, the Federal Reserve, in its wisdom, decided that they had to be looser than they would have been otherwise. So one of the reasons why we had QE2 and QE3 was that fiscal policy was becoming quite restricted. Now, finally, and this is the point that from an analytical and also societal perspective is so incredibly interesting, is the Fed knows that what they're doing right now can really fight potential illiquidity in the economy, help to build a bridge to a better world six months from now. But it can't deal with what's surely going to happen and what investors are grappling with now is what is the economy going to look like in 2021, 22, and 23? If it is significantly different, we are going to have to reallocate not only capital, but we're going to have to allocate labor to different firms, different industries. Some industries are going to cut it, some can't. And that reallocation process cannot be done by the Fed. It needs to be done by the firms and the workers themselves, aided by fiscal policy. It can come in the form of tax credits. It can come in the form of support for R&D, all those things. That's why when Federal Reserve members say, we can deal with liquidity problems, but we can't deal with fundamental structural problems in the U.S. economy by keeping rates low, what they're saying is, we need to reorganize our economy, and while the Fed knows the economy needs to be reorganized in the future, lower rates is not the way to get there. You need fiscal policy in a way to help reorient the economy in a, in a cost-effective uh, and humane way. Well, finally, Carrie, I'd love to come back to inflation. And as we were discussing earlier, after 2008 and the extraordinary Fed intervention, that as you mentioned, that's when they expanded their balance sheet. That's when they created these financing vehicles. There was a lot of concern that that would eventually result in inflation. And it never happened, even though we had a pretty robust economic recovery. What do you think are going to be the long-term results of, of this intervention? And the, the Fed, it sounds like from what you've said, has gone even further than it did in 2008. Do you think that there's a prospect of inflation at some point? Yes, uh, there's a prospect for inflation uh, on a number of, of levels. The first is the one you've alluded to and what people were worried about in 08 is the uh, famous uh, remark about inflation that it's too much money chasing too few goods. So that could certainly happen with the actions the Fed has taken, but not with a considerable lag. The second point that I've been making, and I'm finally seeing uh, wiser heads than mine bringing up the same point, is that currently what you might call COVID walking around inflation 
is probably much higher than the measured inflation in the CPI, which is effectively zero, if not mildly negative. I've seen estimates of inflation, and I know this is not a high number, but 1% compared to currently zero. And the reason for that is that goods that you and me are currently transacting and buying, such as a grocery store, those prices have gone up a lot. But a lot of goods that we can't buy, like opera tickets or uh, amusement park rides, those prices have gone down, but they're not effectively being purchased. So the actual inflation rate right now is, is higher. And uh, so many people think inflation is picking up. If you go to the grocery store, it's uh, quite impressive. And then finally, I will be a little provocative when I say that, is I think in the short run, and for all the right reasons, we may get more inflation. Because once again, if you say to yourself, that some of the lowest paid workers in our society are, are doing some of the most important things, working on the front lines at hospitals or delivering goods or working in grocery stores. There was a feeling 50 years ago that maybe the highest paid workers in society were going to be the people doing the worst jobs. In other words, we we're going to have to pay garbage men a lot of money because no one wanted to, to uh, take out uh, the garbage. And it may sound flip, but I don't mean this to be flip at all. So if we have a society decide that these people need to be rewarded because they're a lot more important than we think they are, then that's going to lead to higher wages. Now, if that means that restaurant workers get paid a higher wage, is it going to lead to a world? And once again, I don't mean to be flip when I say that, but when I was a kid growing up in a typical middle-class family in the 1950s and early 60s, and I'm not being facetious when I say that, only rich people could afford to go to a fancy sit-down dinner. Only rich people flew. So the kinds of things that could become very expensive, such as dining out, sit-down, not stand-up uh, eating, uh, and planes may get to be a lot more expensive, not because we've done anything wrong, but because those business models have to change. And at the same time, a lot of those workers are going to be paid more. So it may be that restaurant prices are going to have to increase substantially and uh, and so there could be some inflation, not because of necessarily monetary policy, because we in society want to pay people more. And in doing so, to pay those people more, firms have to charge more. So I think inflation may surprise us and be made more a phenomenon from a rising minimum wage. But that's for all the good reasons. Make us a better, more humane society, but at a higher price level and a higher inflation rate to get you there. So, Kerry, one final question. Not only are we going through a pandemic, we're also going through a lot of soul searching as a society about inequalities in our society. And the Fed has been accused of being on the side of the rich and inflating asset values. Do you have a perspective on that? The Fed's relationship to inequality is, is of, of two facets. The first is, and what most people know, is that if the Fed lowers interest rates, that tends to promote higher asset values. And asset values uh, tend to help more well-to-do people than less well-to-do people. So in some sense, the Fed policies the last 10 years have tended to make society uh, in terms of income more unequal. However, the Fed, by running the economy hot and bringing in people in low wages, particularly in the last uh, three years from 2016 to 2019, they were actually doing the reverse and actually fostering equality because they were bringing in low wage workers. There were several years in the last five years that the biggest increases in wages were for the people on the lowest rungs of the economic ladder. So it's important to remember that, believe it or not, the best anti-poverty income equalizing program is to get a job. If you have a job, your chances of being in poverty are about 4%. If you don't have a job, it's more like 50%. Well, Kerry, thank you so much. This has been a fascinating conversation, and I, I really appreciate talking with you. Todd, it's been a pleasure, and I hope, hope you and our podcast listeners 
uh, glean some uh, insights, if not some wisdom from our from our conversations. Thank you again for listening. For more information about Choate Investment Advisors, you can visit www.choateia.com. That's C-H-O-A-T-E-I-A.com. You can also listen to more of our episodes in the newsroom of our website and subscribe to them wherever you listen to podcasts, including iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Thanks again. The information provided in this recording is for informational purposes only. Uh, While Choate Investment Advisors makes every attempt to present accurate information, the information in this recording may not be appropriate for your specific circumstances, and it may become outdated over time. Views expressed on this podcast are personal opinions only and should not be considered as financial advice for your given situation. Moreover, the views expressed by Carrie Leahy are not necessarily endorsed by Choate Investment Advisors, and Choate Investment Advisors may decide to select investments on a different basis at any time and without prior notice. Finally, as everyone should know, past performance is not a guarantee of future performance.